Have you ever wondered what it takes to be an effective teacher in the tech industry? Well, wonder no more. We had the pleasure of chatting with Angie Jones, Senior Developer Advocate at Applet Tools and Director at Test Automation University about her experience as a teacher. Angie talks to us about her teaching and learning styles and shares some advice for those looking to get into the world of teaching. In this episode, we'll discuss things like how to teach to multiple skill levels and common misconceptions about being a teacher. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma. And we're debugging the tech industry. This week's episode is brought to you by LogRocket. How many times have you struggled to figure out an annoying bug in your app? Well, struggle no more. LogRocket lets you replay what users do on your site, helping you reproduce bugs and fix issues faster. You can see a perfect replay of what your users saw, inspect Redux actions and state at any point in time, view every network request and response, and even inspect console logs and JavaScript errors. LogRocket lets you support your users without the tedious back and forth conversations. Plus, it works with React, Angular, plain JavaScript, Redux, Ember, and Vue. Check out LogRocket today to improve your debugging workflow. So, Angie, can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Sure. So, I'm an automation engineer, which basically means I do the development of automated tests. I've been in the industry for quite a while and um, I've had a couple of stints in production development as well, but much prefer to be in uh, test automation. That's amazing. And I read that you are a master inventor and your work led to over 25 patents. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So love tinkering with things and basically answering the question of why not. <laughs> so a, a lot of times just dealing with technology, it doesn't do everything you want it to do. And I often ask the question, why not? And come up with a solution. And, and, and that's been patentable at least 25 times. <laughs> that's amazing. And so I also saw that you worked at IBM and you worked at Twitter. What did you do at both of those companies? I also worked at IBM. So I'm curious. I always like when I meet someone else who worked there, I'm interested in learning about what they did. Yes, yeah, so I did um, feature development for a couple of years and automation there as well for most of the part. And at Twitter, also automation engineer there. That's amazing. Awesome. And I see most recently uh, you're working or you're very active with Test Automation University. You're the director, right? Mm hmm. And can you tell us a little bit more about what Test Automation University is? Yeah. So when working at places like IBM, Twitter, a couple of other companies as well, there would be the need for automation engineers. And so we would always have like recs to hire people, but it's such a unique skill. You basically, I describe it as having the skill set of a developer, but the mindset of a tester. And it's very hard to find people who are really good at both of those things. So those job recs were really hard to feel. Um, We would interview lots of people, but could never fill all of the wrecks that we had. And so I knew that there was a need to just advance the industry in this space. So I started doing like a lot of conference talks and uh, workshops and teaching people how to do this. Also write blog posts and things like that. And uh, let's say I'm doing a workshop in London, for example, where if there's somebody all the way maybe in Australia, they can't necessarily come to that workshop. So I would get a lot of requests about just having the content available online in some way, which I just did not. 
So I recently transitioned into a developer advocacy role. And in this role, one of the things that I wanted to do is to finally offer those courses for people. And I was kind of thinking of just doing my own courses, like one or two. <laughs> but my company, um, when I ran it by them, my company is Apple Tools. And they're a small startup, but all about giving back to the community. So they had the grand idea of, hey, let's launch a university. And I'm thinking like, what? <laughs> like I don't I don't really have the time or bandwidth for that. I was more thinking like my one or two courses, but yeah, we talked it through and uh, thought about just getting other industry experts to provide courses. And so people that I know their work, I know they know what they're talking about and um, they're a trusted source. So it took me about a week to get on board with it. I thought about it and, and decided, yeah, this, this is needed. It's a needed space. Um, there's not a lack of content. There's actually quite the opposite. There's probably too much content, and you don't know which of those are good, reliable sources. You know what I mean? So that's how Test Automation U came about. Um, it's a free online platform offering um, courses on all things test automation and it's totally free and sponsored by my company. Yeah, that's really, really incredible. I think as many resources as possible that make learning to code and learning new skills really accessible both economically and then also from uh, instructional point of view is really, really important, especially those really strong resources that have the correct information and right. actually make sense. So important. So what drew you into teaching in the first place, like starting those workshops and then building those online courses as well? What drew you into that? Yeah, I think... I must have been a teacher in another life or something. There's, <laughs> there's something that I really enjoy about it, and it's very natural for me. Um, although, you know, I didn't pursue, like, any training to become a teacher or anything like that. I actually started kind of, like, right after I graduated from college. You know how you finish school and you go into the workforce and then now all of a sudden you have like all of this extra time on your hands and you're trying to figure <laughs> out like yeah what you're like I, I don't have this? homework no homework anymore exactly so I started looking for just like little side hustles and things to do so in addition to like my side coding projects I also took a online job at tutor.com tutoring like high school and college kids and math like you know things like algebra and stuff like that um, and so that, I think that's probably like my first formal experience in teaching others and I just really enjoyed it and it was such a rewarding thing that you know students they could understand what it is that you're saying. Like you take something and you break it down into its simplest form so that anyone can grasp it. So that was just something that was really um, rewarding for me. That sounds great. I wish I had more teachers with the same kind of outlook that you did. I struggled a lot in college with professors who didn't understand the premise of teaching to students who maybe didn't learn just from lectures and maybe they needed analogies to kind of break things down. And um, so I think we take teachers for granted and I would love to show more appreciation for that. Yeah. Did you ever have a memorable teacher throughout, you know, any time in your education um, that really stood out to you and, and made you love teaching? I'm going to um, say one of my professors in undergrad um, when I first went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Like, I didn't know that, like, 
tech was a thing. <laughs> I didn't know like people programmed for a living. Like that was just something that was not on my radar at all. So I went to college, like just very unsure of what I wanted to do. And I just kind of majored in business thinking like, okay, I'll figure it out. And I'm sure a business degree will come in handy and whatever I decide to do. So my father... He was accountant at the time, and he kind of could see the trends and see that tech was becoming an emerging space. And so he recommended that I take just a computer class, like just take something so that you know how to work the thing, right? And uh, I, uh, silly me, not knowing anything, I enrolled in a C++ course. (laughs) And um, I actually loved it. So that was like my first intro to programming and I enjoyed it. I did really well at it. And that instructor, he was good at breaking it down. But not only that, he went beyond just teaching the material and he saw the potential in me and asked, like, why are you not a CS major? And um, like, I don't know, what is that? What do they do? (laughs) And, you know, he's like this, they write code. And I was like, oh, okay, I like to write code. Sure. So I switched my major. And um, I think that's probably why he stands out most for me is that, you know, that was a, a pivotal point in my life of like figuring out what I want to do and just having someone who is an expert in that to see the potential in you and and encourage you um, was really, really helpful for me. I wonder, too, if like a part of being a teacher is also partially being a mentor. I think it comes like it depends on like where in the educational um, journey you are. Like if as a college professor, I think part of it is mentorship, too, because college age kids, kids really don't know what they want to do with their careers. They don't. And it's really easy to become discouraged. So mm-hmm. I um, after the whole tutor.com thing, I eventually took a job as an adjunct professor at a local college, and I started teaching Java programming there. And it was really interesting, you know, I, I that was where I learned, like, that whole mentoring thing is important as well. So teaching them the material, yes, that's the main job, but also, like, these are human beings and they have all of these different emotions and things going on with their life or whatever. And so people would come in and they might feel intimidated, especially in tech, and you probably can identify with this. Allie, I know a little bit of your story, but you come into, like, a intro to programming course and there's going to be people in there who've been coding like their entire life um since they were eight so at this point 18 years old you've been doing this for 10 years now like you're like a senior developer almost you know Mm -hmm. and um for to have someone like me who didn't have experience with that and you come into the classroom and you have all of these people it's really easy to get like this sense of imposter syndrome and so I made it my mission to kind of be on the lookout for that and to help encourage those students that I saw might be struggling with that and to let them know that they do belong because that's essentially what that professor did for me is to say, hey, you belong here, you're good at it, and this is you should make a career out of this. And so I tried to pay that forward to my students as well. Like you had said earlier that you don't have any formal edu- like training in being a, a teacher, but you don't need to have formal training to be one of the best teachers. And there's, I feel like there's this kind of misconception, at least when where I went to school, that just because you have a PhD means you're a good teacher. And it's like being a good teacher is more than your credentials. It's, it's all about connecting with your students in whatever manner 
is right for them and mm-hmm. not just sp- like spouting knowledge at people and assuming that they're going to get it. Like we had a, my intro to programming course, it was Java and we had two exams the whole year. That was it to make up your grade. And it was a midterm and a final and they were open book. And he said, most of you are going to fail this. And if you would rather mm-hmm. take a 60% and walk away and not take it, it'll probably be better than the score you're going to get. And to me, that's like, like, that's not how you teach students and he also would like rank his students in terms of his favorites and like it was Mm. he had a PhD and he was extremely smart and I think that we see that and we're like oh they must be a good teacher they're super smart and it's like that's not it does not equate to a good teacher necessarily right totally and I have a formal education background like I was going to be an education minor in school before I left and all that and did my shadowing semester in an elementary school and all that. And I use some of that. I know how to make lesson plans as a result of that. But (laughs) at the same point, it's more those human skills and the just knowing to reach out to them about imposter syndrome and educating them and telling them not to compare themselves to anybody else. And just having my experience feeling like an imposter in tech, I think is almost more valuable than my formal education background. Mm -hmm. So I really like that you spoke to that. I want to transition a little bit to talking more about the mechanics of teaching. So something that I see a lot is having to teach to those multiple skill levels. Like you said, like you and I both went into computer science classrooms not knowing how to code and not knowing too much about tech at all. And how do you reach those learners but still keep those more advanced learners engaged as well? Yeah, I still struggle with that to this day, like when I'm creating workshops and things of that nature for conferences or even doing my courses on Test Automation University. There's going to be different levels of, of knowledge there. And sometimes I'm teaching something that I, I deem as advanced, right? So I want this to be an advanced course and try to do it at that level. And I've done that for a couple of workshops and everybody shows up <laughs> whether they're advanced or not. So what I've learned to do is just break things down to the simplest terms, even if I have to like recite some definition that theoretically maybe everyone should know this based on the write-up of the course, but so what, let's just say it anyway. And just sharing that, I found that is very helpful for beginners, even people with experience, like it just kind of gets us all on the same page of, okay, this is what this definition means. And this is how we're going to, you know, teach this concept based on this definition. It kind of is a level set thing and also a refresher. Like sometimes a lot of us jump into new technologies or new tools and we need to do it for a specific job. So we learn enough to use it to get that job done. So it doesn't hurt to just give the fundamentals of things. A lot of people are lacking that even though they do have the experience in it. So that's that's been very helpful. A lot of people will provide feedback to me saying things like, you know, you have a gift of breaking things down to its simplest terms. And, you know, I think some people who teach, they kind of shy away from that because they don't want anyone to think that they're a novice, right? So it's almost like, trying to show off how smart they are (laughs) and basically teaching that's a level above almost everyone's heads. And I guess they feel good at the end of that session, but no one else does. And it didn't accomplish the goal that was set forth. So 
breaking things down, just making it very simple, using analogies that people can understand, giving them the tools to help them basically associate the content with something that makes sense to them, I think is my approach. I think learning is really a vulnerable act in and of itself. You have to kind of put yourself in a position to digest new information and also admit when you don't understand something. And that's very hard. And I think being part of part of being a good teacher is creating a safe environment to be vulnerable. And I think to your point, don't make assumptions about what people know. Let's let's break it down, because at the end of the day, repetition is it solidifies knowledge. And I think it's better to repeat. And then everyone is at the foundational level. Everyone starts at the same place. Because I mean, what's repetition is much better than making assumptions and then having half the people be lost. I'm curious, like, maybe in workshops, do you think it would be a good idea to say, like, take periodic breaks and say, like, if you have any questions, like you can come up to me directly, because I know a lot of people get nervous about asking questions in public and, and maybe feeling dumb or not seen as intelligent for not understanding. Yeah, I don't even um, ask them to come up. I've started just walking around and kind of just touching bases with people in a quiet whisper, like, oh, hey, did you need anything? And if they're okay, they'll say, oh, I'm okay. But a lot of people who are stuck, they're Mm -hmm. not sure what to do. They don't even know what question to ask, really. They'll, you know, you can see the relief on their face that I stopped by Mm -hmm. and it's like, yes, okay, here's where I am. I I don't know what to do. And, you know, you help those people get unstuck while everybody else is working. And it's not a big deal. You know, it's not a a whole broadcast that this person is stuck or whatever. That's a great point that maybe often they don't even know what question to ask, right? Mm -hmm. So what do you struggle the most with when it comes to teaching? Hmm. Probably giving people enough content without giving them too much. So I would say it was probably something I used to struggle with, and I'm getting a whole lot better with that now. I try to practice, like, conciseness. I don't want to give you too little, but I want to give you everything that you need in a concise way, as opposed to, like, elaborating on certain points and lecturing people, um, more kind of making it, like, hands-on, giving those analogies and different tools so that I don't have to talk a whole lot, but you still grasp the concept. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's like a balancing act almost. Yeah. (laughs) Allie, have you had like different, like a different challenge maybe that you've had to overcome? Uh, I think that it's so tough because I think people forget that you have to be a subject matter expert on both teaching and also coding. And so balancing that and excelling at both of those fields is pretty, pretty hard. And it's a lot to juggle, especially when you're trying to show stuff off and appeal to different learning styles and maybe having to reteach stuff if it doesn't land the first time and evolve lessons on the fly while you're in front of a classroom. It's definitely tough. Well, can I actually challenge that statement real quick? Because you said you had to balance being like a subject matter expert in teaching and coding, but I don't necessarily know if you need to be an expert to teach But I think maybe to teach like a workshop, but like anyone can teach something, you know, without being an expert, like blogging, right? Like we talked about when you blog, you don't need to be an expert. Do you think that teaching in a professional setting, like you do need to be an expert? 
I think it totally depends on the format. So the way that I teach at a boot camp in front of everybody, yeah, I need to be an expert and I need to know my stuff in order to do that. I don't think necessarily to write a blog post or do a free workshop online or something Mm -hmm. like that you do. But I would say that if you're asking people to spend a huge amount of money on it and dedicate their lives to it, then you do. (laughs) And they they often have lots of questions that goes Mm -hmm. beyond the scope of what you even planned on teaching them. And so you have to know this and be able to answer those questions as well. But yeah, I agree with that. I think there are different formats. I definitely like encourage people to teach in some way, whether that be a blog post. So for a blog post, what's something that you just learned? That's the perfect thing to go and write like a blog post. You're not an expert on that, but you have this fresh perspective and you can kind of talk through what you did. And I I often tell people like, don't even look at that as teaching because that Mm -hmm. becomes scary at that point (laughs) because you feel like you have to be an expert. But look at that as just a sharing. Oh, I'm just sharing something I did. And through that, people are learning learning, but you don't have that whole like preface of, oh, I'm the subject matter expert here. Or do you think like maybe as opposed to having subject matter expertise, do you think it's more important to know how to find the answer than having like a backlog of information ready to answer their question? Or do you think it could be a balance? Like, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm going to think about myself as a student. And if I went to like a workshop or took an online course or something, and I had like a bunch of questions that the person like didn't know. I would probably <laughs> Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> be a little bit worried. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but like at the same time you don't expect people to know everything, right? And so in cases like those, yes, saying, "Oh, okay, I don't know for sure, but let me find out and I know where to get the answer." That's very helpful, but if you say that like over and over. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> totally, totally. Have you noticed any misconceptions about being a teacher? Yeah, I don't like that saying, the ones like, uh, those who can't, they teach. Have you heard that one? Oh, my God. That makes me angry. Oh, my God, that drives me crazy. It It is. I don't like that (laughs) because I definitely can do, and that very much so shapes the way that I teach. My course, like the students loved coming to my course when I taught at the college because I would often sprinkle in like anecdotes about working in the real world or even when teaching conventions, like those things sound like nitpicky things. Like when you're telling people, oh, it must be in this case, you know, it must be camel case or this must be lowercase or, oh, you semicolon or no semicolon and all of these different things just sounds like oh my god you're getting on my nerves (laughs) but (laughs) but when I would sprinkle in things like okay so most working teams you know in professional environments these are the conventions that they use so when you're doing like your coding interviews or when you first join a team as a junior it'll be nice if you know these things those things resonated with them like they love to hear that kind of thing and sometimes we ask questions like oh uh Professor Jones, in the real world, how does this work kind of thing? So I thought that was really cute. I wish you were my teacher because I could have used a (laughs) heck of a lot of real world uh, knowledge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Going back to your misconception, too, I will never forget. I had a student who came up to me. And was like, you're actually really good at coding. Uh-oh. Like, why couldn't you get a job coding? <laughs> I was like, I did. <laughs> and had multiple. <laughs> but I just like teaching more. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like that statement either, but I'm glad we're trying to break it down. 
So you mentioned that you're a developer advocate. Do you think as a developer advocate, there's maybe some level of responsibility to learn how to teach? Yeah, it's a huge part of my job to be able to transfer knowledge to people. And knowing how to teach is really beneficial for me in how I write my talks, how I structure blog posts, how I put together lesson plans and courses, all of that is not just me, the engineer, but also me, the teacher, and understanding like how to get that through to people. What is you know what's the best way to present this to them so that everyone understands it? I think that that helps me so much in my job as a developer advocate. Love that. I love that. When you teach, what's kind of your teaching style? Do you focus more on lectures or activities or demos? How do you appeal to all these different learning styles? Yeah. So when I first started doing workshops, they were hands-on, but I was talking so much. Like I I would basically walk them through every single exercise and it was kind of like, do it along with me. And I would be so exhausted by the end of those workshops, like dead, right? And I would see other people who did workshops and they're like, oh, ready to go to dinner? And they had like all this life. And, I'm, <laughs> and I asked them like, how, how, how are you like this? And they explained like, oh, well, you give them more things to do. You don't have to like be in their face for eight hours, right? And so I started using some of that type of approach and that's been very beneficial. So I'll, I'll teach a little bit and maybe show an example and then give them an exercise to do on their own. And so people seem to really like that a lot. They don't tire out as much. And um, I think it probably sinks in better when they're able to think it through versus just doing whatever I'm telling them to do. I love that. I even formalize that. I do, which is kind of a lecture type introduction. And then we do. So kind of code along, we all do it together. And then you all do mostly group work and then them doing it individually is the last step is you do so I definitely do that as well just even in a have a little bit of a terminology for it yeah. so I really, really like that format I do we do I like that you do I want to <laughs> take both of your workshops <laughs> where were you when I was learning I'm still learning so I will join so what would you say is your favorite subject to teach I am a Java baby. I really love Java. <laughs> I just did a course on um, Java, and which is on Test Automation University. And I've been doing Java my whole career. I dabble in some other languages as well, depending on like what projects I have to do for work. But Java has been the one I've used the most. And when I did that course, I like fell back in love with Java. Like not that I wasn't in love with it, but it was like. Oh, Java. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's like my favorite thing to teach. And then I also teach a lot of like test automation strategies and techniques, which is really helpful for a lot of teams because so many companies are struggling with this, especially in like DevOps type shops or if anybody's doing like agile software development. Test automation is a key ingredient for there. And yet a lot of people don't know not only how to do it technically, but how to think about it and how to incorporate it with their culture and their process. So I teach a lot on that as well. Awesome. Who do you look up into in the industry? So who's a teacher in code that you, you are inspired by? You know who I study like a book is Sarah Drasner. 
She is uh, phenomenal. I love the way that she shares content. She teaches, but she also like makes all of these developer tools and she's just amazing. So she's someone who I study a lot on like technique and approach. She's so multifaceted too, because I remember taking her front end master's course on view and I watched the whole thing and I was able to build a, an enterprise level website using view. And I just remember being like, this is who I want to be. This is, yeah. she is almost unparalleled in the industry for, she's one of the greatest teachers I've ever met, but she has so many strong suits. I mean, like she is, she is just above and beyond. And I aspire to be that as well someday. Yeah. I got to hang out with her like two weeks ago. I saw ago. your picture. It was so cute. <laughs> and you know how, like I was a little bit afraid because she's such a hero of mine. And mm. you know how they say like, don't meet your heroes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was hoping she wasn't like odd in real life, but no, she was, she was just as amazing, if not more. And I got to like see how her personality plays into the way that she does things. So she's just a very thoughtful person, you know, has empathy. And I think all of those things that people like call the soft skills, those are really powerful traits when you need to teach other people how to do things. Absolutely. And I've noticed with her specifically, she delivers like tough love in a way that's constructive. Like she Mm -hmm. and I have had conversations where, you know, she said things to me that I really needed to hear. Now, had they come from someone else, like it would have been really hard for me to hear. But Mm -hmm. because she creates a safe environment to have these discussions. She's just, and I, that definitely transfers over to her teaching as well. You can tell she definitely has a level of empathy. And I think along with empathy, yeah, you do need tough love sometimes. So um, yeah. <laughs> highly agree. She's a great teacher. How do, I'm curious. So you mentioned you love Java, which is funny because I started in Java and I did not like it. <laughs> I think it was because I did not have a great teacher. I do feel like a teacher can also kind of make make or break your experience learning something. But how did how do you personally learn? Like, what's your learning style? It's interesting. I tweeted something not too long ago, basically saying, if you are thinking about writing something and you haven't because someone else has already written it, write it anyway because you probably have a different style. And that came from me trying to learn like some new feature that just was released in Java. And so I'm looking up tutorials to learn about it. And I went through about five of them, Emma, before I found (laughs) one that I could follow, you know, those styles just did not (laughs) work for me. So I like, I like people to like break it down. Don't give me a whole bunch of like fancy jargon and stuff like that. Just like speak plainly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would love some examples. Mm -hmm. So a whole bunch of text talking about coding is not that powerful. (laughs) Well, we think about accessibility of content. It's not just about whether or not it's accessible from like a, can I Mm. reach this perspective, but is it accessible in a digestible way? Can people Mm. understand this? Because you've got people all over the world trying to read this. Exactly. Exactly. People from like different languages, some people like translate it themselves and try to Mm -hmm. follow along with that. And if you're like using all of this complex uh, vocabulary and stuff no. that's not very very useful for them so Absolutely. i'm guilty that's, of that that's sometimes definitely my, yeah that's my learning style like i like it plain just make it plain please give me some examples so that i understand context and mm-hmm. i'm good to go 
I think I struggled a long time to understand certain technical things like promises was something I struggled so much with because when you go to Google, what's a promise or what's asynchronous programming and you get all these results, they're just technical jargon. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until like I heard the concept of like ordering food at a restaurant. It's like you order food and you give your um, order to a waiter and then they go back to the kitchen And meanwhile, you can continue on having conversations or, Mm -hmm. you know, drinking your drinks. And then, you know, either they'll bring back your food or they'll come back and be like, oh, actually, we're out of it. Do you want something else? So these analogies, these real world analogies are so Mm -hmm. accessible to people because they resonate with them. Yep, exactly. Oftentimes, this happens all the times in books and academia everywhere where people are telling you about some concept. And if you don't have anything to like. I call it like hang hang that on to. If you don't have anything to hang that on to, meaning no experience, no examples, it's really hard to follow that. So in giving like those real world analogies, so key to getting people to grasp these concepts mm-hmm. and be able to hang it on to something. Yeah. And I think, too, we forget that, like you mentioned earlier about walking into a computer science course or your C++ course and there had been students and there had been coding their whole lives. Well, mm-hmm. I also, I didn't start learning how to code until my sophomore year of college and I felt the same way where I'd walk in and there were all these people who knew exactly what they were doing. And I struggled for a very long time. (laughs) Like I was not a good computer science student. I think I almost failed. I, well, I almost failed my calculus courses, which was awful. And then like I took a cryptography course and almost failed that. Like, and I also want to iterate too, that if you're not a great test taker or a great student in terms of like the grades you receive, that doesn't mean you can't be successful. Like everyone has a different learning style. And I don't think all the teachers you'll encounter in your life will understand that, but that doesn't mean you won't be successful. Right, right. Yeah. So I guess I would love to end on one more question, and that is what parting advice would you give to someone interested in getting into teaching? Yeah, so just start off with something that's like manageable and containable and low pressure. So maybe things like blog posts, if there's a technique or technology that you've just learned and you want to share or something you've been doing forever and you want to share. Um, A lot of times I would just write blog posts about like my experience. Here's how I do X, Y, Z at my job kind of thing. And then, you know, show how do I work that in? How do I like architect the solution and just showing all of those examples. And that was a very low pressure Mm -hmm. (laughs) entry into this for me, especially like teaching professionals. Like I wasn't as scared to teach like students because I felt like I knew a lot more than they did. But Mm -hmm. professionals, you know, there's a lot of people who will read your thing that know more than you do. And so that Mm -hmm. becomes really scary because you're like, oh, I don't want people like correcting me publicly or Mm -hmm. saying that I don't really know my stuff or whatever. And so the blog post is a nice entryway into that, especially if you don't have like a huge following and stuff already. That's how I started. I didn't have any followers, or Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and I just was writing and no one was reading it. But it was nice for me to just write those things down. And I often like visit them myself when I hit the similar problem right. in a new job or um, when people ask me questions now I have that stuff that I've written so I can share that back with them so as I started writing and kind of building up my confidence in teaching publicly and teaching professionals is when I started doing like the workshops and again that's also not a whole lot of pressures maybe like 30 people in your workshop so mm-hmm. 
It's not like the whole wide world. (laughs) So that was good as well. And then as I just started getting feedback from people and them saying like, oh, that was great. You know, I, I didn't understand this concept forever until you explained it the way that you did. Thank you so much. And you start seeing the impact that you're making. That's when I started doing like bigger stages or, you know, the online courses and not as fearful about it. Yeah. And I love... I love that idea of like, just because it has been written about before doesn't mean your voice isn't valid. Because think about like, when you go to the grocery store, there's not just one type of cereal, right? If there was like, (laughs) it would like, there would be people who just don't eat it. So I mean, variation is good, because they're everyone's journey and everyone's vantage point is different. But I also think like, we're in an industry where there are many solutions to the same problem. So True. just because, you know, someone's written about, you know, one solution doesn't mean that's the only solution. Yeah. My, my one piece of advice there is to just go into it thinking that you're sharing versus actually teaching, right? Mm-hmm. When you come at it from a teacher's standpoint or like, oh, I'm the subject matter expert Mm -hmm. and this is the way to do X, right? That's when I see people kind of get attacked or questioned because like you said, there's uh, multiple ways to solve problems. When I'm sharing and I say, here's how I do X, that's much more received. That's received better, right? People, they want to know other ways that people are doing things. But when you come at it as, oh, let me teach you. And this is the only way to do it. You put people on the defensive and then they start attacking. (laughs) That's something I've had my eyes open to recently because I think that prior to like talking with more people from all over the world, I would subconsciously say like, you should do this. You should do this. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, who am I to tell you how to do something? This is how I would do it, but that doesn't mean it's the only way or that it's the right way. This is one right. way. Right. I would agree. I think that that's a very important sentiment. So so I want to thank you for your time today because it has been an absolute pleasure. You're someone that I've wanted to talk with for a very long time and someone who I very much respect. And if you want to go check out Angie's blog or if you want to go check out Test Automation University, which you should, we'll link those down in the show notes. So thank you again so much for joining us. Yes, thank you all so much for having me. If you liked this episode, tweet about it. We'll select one tweeter to win Ladybug stickers each week. If you want to hear someone join us on the Ladybug podcast, fill out the nomination form on our website. You can nominate yourself, by the way. We post new episodes every single Monday, so make sure you're subscribed to be notified. And if you're feeling extra generous, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.